and welcome to The Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. What a fascinating life today's guest has led. Karis Bray was brought up in a strict Mormon family in Southport and married by the age of 20. She had five children within seven years before deciding to leave behind her faith and study creative writing. Her first novel, 2014's A Song for Izzy Bradley, won widespread acclaim and was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award. Since then, she's published two other novels, including the recently released When the Lights Go Out. Its timing is uncanny, as a couple grapple with stockpiling, mortality, family and more. I love talking to her about this, and I'm so grateful for her openness in discussing her upbringing, as well as how the tragic death of her daughter shaped her desire to examine grief in fiction. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Karis, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the Sunday Salon. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you. Thank you for having me. I wonder if, uh, I, I, there's quite a lot I want to ask you about, um, but I wonder if we can just start with the book, which is rather fortuitously timed in the sense that when you wrote it, you probably thought you were sort of writing, I suppose, a sort of semi-apocalyptic kind of idea sort of stockpiling and and self-sufficiency and and so on and and now actually that's kind of a reality of our of our lives but but can you just tell us a little bit about when the lights go out yeah um so when the lights go out is the story of emma and chris and they've been married for some time and they have an historically happy relationship however when we join them um, during a particularly wet winter. Um, it's at a time when their relationship is becoming quite strained. Um, while Emma is preparing for Christmas, Chris is fretting about starvation and societal collapse. He's turned off the heating and he is trekking his teenage sons across the moss, which is um, some farmland near their house. Um, he, he's dragging them out there in, in, in the pouring rain. And, um, and he has other plans that Emma would definitely veto if, if he shared them. Uh, Emma would really wants to, to try and rescue Chris um, from this you know, pit of worry that he's fallen into. But mm. he doesn't he doesn't want to be rescued. In fact, he, he would quite like to pull her in after him. Um, it's it's a novel about uh, coming to terms with our changing environment. And it's also a novel um, about the changing climate of a marriage. And I suppose one thing that is quite interesting is that, you know, Chris's family sort of think he's gone a bit mad. Um, But in our current world, some of his behaviour doesn't seem quite so mad. Has that changed? I mean, when you obviously when you were writing it, you would have no idea that that was the case. But has that change your perception of your own characters in a way or um probably not although I have to I, I think most of us now can will, would sort of think yeah do you know what having a few spare tins of beans and, and a few bags of pasta you know on hand if we need them is is not um is, yeah there's nothing wrong with that is there um but I I grew up in a family um that that sort of was um was into keeping uh spare spare bits of, uh, of of food around we we used to um 
when I was a child, we had one of those uh, 1980s fireplaces that sort of was made out of rocks, like like almost like a crazy paving thing that, that went right up the wall. And it came around in, and made a sort of TV stand and, and it, the TV stand was hollow. And inside there, my, my parents used to store um, extra tins of baked beans and, and other food um, because um, they they were very into being prepared in case of unemployment or illness but they were also uh, preparing um, you know for the second coming because they were quite um, well they are quite religious people so I was used to this idea of of storing things um, you know in case of the future in case of things um, going wrong and so I, I have always been that kind of a person myself because that's how I how I grew up so Chris it just sort of takes it that sort of step beyond what, what most of us might think is sensible um and it, it, it has become you know a bit of a bit of an obsession um with him but yes I, I did look back um when the you know when we found ourselves in the first lockdown I did look back at a few sections of the novel um there's a section where Chris and Emma are watching a mockumentary about pandemics and uh, and I thought oh gosh I really need to reread that what if I've said something you know that that now seems like a terrible thing to have said or what if I've completely got it wrong and uh, while they're watching this this mockumentary um, everybody in the mockumentary behaves appallingly um, doctors run away um, you know there's, there's like this huge sort of collapse of civilization within a matter of a few days and in the novel Emma sort of says to Chris that's not that's not how people will be would behave um, and I'm just really glad that seems that, that Emma was right because people you know have been so brave and doctors have been incredible and so you know people porters and cleaners and care workers and everybody who had to carry on working in a supermarket you know um, and I was just really glad <laughs> that Emma was was um, was right to sort of dismiss um, what Chris was saying in, in those scenes um, and that you know I, I think about my lovely neighbours as well who've been we've, we've got a um, we made a whatsapp group for the street and everyone looked out for the older people you know we did shopping for them and so yeah I, I do like to to think that that Chris is actually quite wrong about um, about a lot of the things that, that he thinks in the novel. Can I ask you about uh, your childhood? Um, you uh, were brought up. Um, you were brought up a Mormon, um, and as you mentioned, that af affected quite heavily um, some of some of your uh, childhood. Um, can you tell me what life was like, and and kind of, I suppose, what your childhood was like? So I would say that I had quite you know happy childhood um I just knew that I sort of that that it was different from other people's so um you know we just had different we had when I was small that the main difference was that there were different rules so for example if any of my classmates had a birthday party on a Sunday I wasn't allowed to go when we brought raffle tickets home um from school uh, to raise money for whatever it was I would have to take them back my parents would would send me back in with the money but also with the tickets because they didn't believe in gambling so mm. so I knew there was like a completely different set of rules that I was living my life by um but it didn't you know it didn't make very much difference at all I think it 
starts to make a difference when you're a teenager and then sort of there are more things that might affect you the way you, you choose to live your life because Mormons don't drink alcohol and they um, and you're not supposed to swear or drink tea or coffee or and so suddenly perhaps some of these things um, make a bigger difference but I was yeah I sort of had to I suppose I had two two selves in a way that's uh, that's not to say that I feel like I was um, sort of being hypocritical I just mean that I had a sort of I had my my Mormon self and then I had my operating in the world <laughs> in, in an ordinary way around other people's health <laughs> if that makes sense so, so yeah I it, to me it was very normal and so when I look back on it now it's very hard to um, to critique it in an objective way you know we went to church every Sunday um, back then and it's not the same now but back then um, church on a Sunday for Mormons lasted for three hours so that's quite a long a long time in church on a, on a Sunday morning um, and and when, then we would have like we'd have prayers like every meal time. We'd have prayers in the morning before we left the house, um, and it was just it was just woven into the whole fabric of the family. And and we had this sort of very tight knit, quite small um, Mormon community of my parents' friends, and you know, and and I had friends as as well. And yeah, it it felt quite safe in some ways and quite cozy and I used to feel quite special like, like as if perhaps I had you know I I knew like all these important things that you know that, that were going to be really valuable to me later in my life and so yeah it's and then obviously I I, I grew up and and as a as a, as an adult as a parent actually I, I I married a Mormon um and it was only when my children were small like very small, that I started to just think that I was really not very comfortable with with a lot of the things that I had grown up to believe, and things began to unravel quite quite quickly once I had children myself. Um, and then about when was it? Probably about twelve, thirteen years ago, um, I left, like sort of formally left the church. And uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's been in sort of interesting to then stand back with that kind of a distance and look back on my old self. And uh, yeah, I try I try to be kind to my old self because I think and I'm going to talk, I'm going to say a sentence about myself in the third person now. And I'm thinking <laughs> you should never do that. But but I, I look back on my old self and, and try and um feel kindly towards her because I think she was she did the best she could um at you know at the time but yeah it's it's just she I, I feel like that old self is is almost sort of separate from from me in, in in many ways because um because my sort of outlook on life and my worldview is just so very different from from how it was and when you say that you start to feel uncomfortable with elements I wonder I hope you don't mind my asking what what was it that you felt uncomfortable with and was there a catalyst for that was there a sort of aside from having children was there a moment where you just thought oh I'm not sure about this can you tell me a bit about that because it's quite a profound experience so as a novelist it would be very tempting to 
go back to 1999 when my second child um, died and think, well, that must be the moment. That must be the moment when I sort of lost my faith or when things started to, you know, sort of fall apart. But I, I don't, I don't think that that was that that was the time. I think you know that was at the time I was twenty three then, and that was probably the most difficult thing that had happened to me, uh, you know, to uh, to that point in my life. But I think over the subsequent years, I realised how much I was going to have to mould my children to think and behave in a particular way and it just I didn't have it in me to do that there were things that I had been willing to accept for myself that I wasn't prepared to accept for my children and I think the the final straw if so so to sort of um perhaps think of a concrete example for me I think the final straw was that the church um, campaigned against um, gay marriage in America quite vociferously and I and my parents to be fair actually I had always um, when I when I was a believing Mormon and I had always felt that as Mormons we could choose to follow rules of our religion but we couldn't um, inflict them or um, force them on anybody else and so I was perfectly I, I felt like like even if I had still been a believing Mormon I would have found that um, really hard to take that the church trying to stop non-Mormons from marrying each other that that just would have seemed very wrong but but I wasn't a believing Mormon at the time and it seemed even more wrong um, and I just felt like I couldn't yeah, I, I couldn't stay um, in an organisation that was behaving like that. And I, I was already a non-believer. But when that happened, I actually had my you can uh, formally request for your name to be removed um, so that you are no longer a member at all. Um, and that's what I did, because I just felt that that was really wrong. And it was an encroachment into other people's lives um, who, who hadn't signed up to be Mormons. <laughs> And therefore, shouldn't have to live by, you know, by those rules. So yeah, so that was my that was my final that was my final straw. But but there were there were other things along the way, um, and I just yeah, I just I could I I, I couldn't do it, um, so I didn't. <laughs> well, thank you for telling me about that. It's something that informed your first novel, uh, a song for Issy Bradley. Um, which also deals with with grief and, and you mentioned the death of your daughter and I'm so sorry about that can you tell me about channeling those things into your first novel and and, and why you decided to do that and, and what it was like was it sort of cathartic or 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 painful and and can you tell me about that yeah, so I, in A Song for Izzy Bradley, um, uh, it's not a spoiler to say that, that Izzy Bradley, Izzy Bradley dies quite quite early on in the novel. Um, and she is, 
this is awful, isn't it? When you look back on a book and you can't remember the exact details, but she's four or five. I think she might be five. Um, and so I wanted to look at what happens um, in a family when when something when when a tragedy occurs and everybody responds in very different ways and th and sort of some people think that their way of responding is the correct way um, and uh, you know what do you do when somebody you love um, is responding in a way that you think is unhealthy or counterproductive or just really difficult to accommodate or or live with um, and I, I recognised from when. My, when my daughter died um, neonatally, so she she was born and she um, thought everything was fine, but it was quickly apparent um, that, that there was something not right. So they, they moved her to a different hospital and um, later at, at the end of that week, um, she died in that in that hospital. Um, so it's quite a different thing, um, I think. Um, so. I think when I was when I was grieving for my daughter, it was all about the, all the things that that I wouldn't find out that I didn't know because I didn't ever get to know her properly. So when I was writing the novel, I imagined you know imagined a different kind of loss. I think so. I don't I don't think of I don't think that I was writing about my daughter's death as such. Do you know what, Do you know what I'm saying? I don't think it was no, sort of yes. cathartic in that way. But but it, I I certainly enjoyed the opportunity to explore the different ways in which different kinds of people might grieve and I did I had some friends who who read the novel and then sort of said said to me oh um you know I don't I, I didn't know I didn't know that you um went to went to bed for weeks you know after your daughter died which is what happens in the novel to the mother and and I had to say to my friends well well that's because I didn't that's you know I'm 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 not the mum in the novel in fact if I was going to to um look back on that novel and think you know which which character was behaved you know most like me it would probably be the father who who has this sort of really annoying um you know we must just keep going and carrying on and like and you know and, and really doesn't want to stop and think about his sadness at all um but I, I I enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed sort of exploring that, you know, what, what it's like to be part of a family and to be different from the other members of your family. And um, and I hope it's quite a funny book as well as, you know, it's sad in places. Um, but I hope it's quite funny because I do think that um, that family life, you know, even at times of great stress, um, can be extremely funny. Um, certainly funny to observe. Perhaps it's not perhaps not so funny when you're when you're a part of it um but yeah I'm not sure if I've answered your question or not to be honest I think I've just rambled for, <laughs> for four minutes <laughs> you you have answered it and it was it was very interesting and and what you touched on is is uh, an, an interesting kind of recurring theme on this podcast which is the assumption people's assumption that um authors are writing I suppose about their own lives and and kind of forgive me if I if I strayed into that territory yet but is it is it how do you deal with that when people kind of assume does it irritate you it's it's often said that women get that assumption more than men does it irritate you when people assume that your your work is about your life um does it irritate me I 
I wasn't, I suppose, I, I was sort of prepared for questions about my life because my first novel was about Mormons and obviously I, I, I had that background and um, I think it's a very human impulse to to want to know which bits of a novel might be real uh, certainly if you go if you do you know um, book club events or things like that people always want to ask you about your life so I think so that they can sort of try and work out whether you put anything um, that's true uh, in the novel and I think all novels do contain some sort of nugget of truth um, from the life of the person who's written it whether that's an emotional truth or whether it's a you know an actual sort of thing that actually happened to them but I think that perhaps people tend to assume that women um, are using stuff from their lives if they're writing novels about home and um, you know that novels that have um, I don't I don't want to use the whole uh, the domestic because I don't like it as a descriptor but but yeah, novels with, with teenage characters or novels, you know, with meal mealtime table conversations and things like that. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. It, it doesn't bother me particularly. Um, I'm always if people want to ask me those kinds of questions, I'm I'm not overly bothered by them. I tend to be glad that they're sort of interested, you know, glad that they've turned up. <laughs> <laughs> to an event um and so i'm 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 happy to to answer them on the whole but but yeah it is it is complicated i think um that instinct um about what you put in fiction and what you don't i think margaret atwood says that um novelists are like magpies they steal the shiny bits and and i there are lines in my books that i have you know absolutely stolen from things people have said to me that i thought are funny um, or clever, or interesting, um, but once it's been fictionalised and edited and drafted, and it's very hard to say anyway. Like what it, what in there um, is entirely made up, and what is either a product of me as a person, or or of something I've heard, or so yeah. I I don't know. I think I'm probably rambling again. <laughs> You're definitely not rambling. It's really, really interesting. Um, can I ask you about um, the path to writing novels for you? I know that you'd wanted to be, uh, you'd been interested in in writing and, and be, being an author from a young age, but it wasn't until after you'd had children that you wrote your first novel. So can you tell me about that? Yes. So I loved I loved writing as a child. I loved reading Um I'm really short-sighted and I think um, that perhaps you know I, I, I did some of that damage myself I, I did used to sort of read by a tiny crack of light you know that used to come through the bedroom door and um, and my parents were inter interesting people because they were both converts to Mormonism but they were both um, they'd both been to university and they my dad had studied drama and my mum had studied history so we had we had quite a lot of books in the house that were interesting books um but they had some quite strict rules about you know what media and uh so, so what videos um and what television we could watch and we we didn't watch anything that was rated above you but we had all these really really interesting books that if if books had ratings on them <laughs> i think some of the books you know would have would have uh, would have been deemed to be unsuitable um but 
I was just allowed to help myself to to any of the books. Uh, they seem to be in an entirely different category from um, from other media, and so I just read and read, and I I loved writing, and I used to write this terrible Famous Five like fan fiction um, when I was in primary school, and then I would present it to my teacher, Mr. Gibb. Um, I don't know whether he read it. He he did a good good uh, impersonation of having read it. If he didn't, um, and you know he would make encouraging comments and I always yeah I always loved English it was always my it was my favorite subject at school and and then I got married and I had children and I had sort of always understood that that was what I would do because that was um you know that was that was a woman's role in in Mormonism and I had um I had so I had five children in um in seven years and so I was quite busy um, for, for a time. And when my youngest child started school, um, so she started school ooh, 2007, maybe, nursery school. And I just suddenly had some time and the house was empty for, you know, um, a couple of hours in the afternoons. and. I just thought I'm going to I'm going to do a degree. So I did a degree with the Open University and and it was fantastic. I love the Open University and I just had the most marvelous um 3 years and they had on the I did an English literature degree and they had an option um to do two creative writing modules which I was like oh yes definitely definitely want to do those. So I did those and I, so I started doing a little bit of writing and I got to the end of my degree and I thought I'd like to do some more writing and I'd like to also do some more studying. So I applied to do a master's um, in creative writing and I went to Edge Hill University, which is about 20 minutes away from where I live. And I did a, an MA and I had a, had a fantastic time doing that. I did the did a full full time course, so it was a one year course. And during that year, um, I started writing short stories. And there was a competition. Uh, well, there is a competition. It's called the Edge Hill Prize, and it's um, a short story award. It, it's a ten thousand uh, pounds prize, and it's for the for a collection of stories published in English in the UK or Ireland, I think, I think those are, those are the terms. Anyway, the university run this prize and um, that year they also included a small prize for a student story and I won the, the student prize that year and my agent, so I didn't, I didn't have an agent or anything then, but my, my now agent, I think, had seen like a press release or just a little sentence tagged on um, to the announcement of of the author who'd won the Edge Hill Prize. It was just a little bit that said, and uh, Caris Bray won the, the MA Student Prize. And and she contacted me and said, oh, you know, you, you, won, you won a prize um, for a short story I, I've seen. Um, please, w would you like to send me a story? And so I did she emailed me back to say that she liked it and asked me if I had any others and I had done my my MA dissertation had been a collection of short stories so I sent her 
you know, <laughs> the settler everything I'd got basically. Um, and she messaged me back and she said, oh yeah, I, I, I like these. Um, next time, next time you're in London, why, why don't you, um, you know, come and see me and we, we could meet. And it was just, it made me laugh because I, I had no, and she knows this now, I think anyway, but I had no plans to, to go to London at all. Um, and I, so I emailed her back and said, oh, I'll be in London in three weeks time. <laughs> so, I made, <laughs> so I made some plans um, to be in London. My husband and I, we went, we went away for the weekend. We went, we watched, um, we will rock you actually. We went, so we went to watch a musical and, uh, and I met her and talked about short stories and because at the time I was just I love short stories and I couldn't envisage myself having enough time to write a novel you know just just that narrative arc that all that planning and thought um I'm not saying that short stories are easier I'm, I'm just saying that they they fit into my life better at the time you know mm. um and and so I um I went away and I entered my short story collection for a prize that was run by Salt, um, the independent publisher, and it won that prize and it was published. And then I started working on a novel and that was um, a song for Izzy Bradley. So, so yes, yeah, so that was how, that was sort of my um, journey to publication, um, you know, in that fortuitous uh, moment when my agent read, um, read that sentence um, was how I I actually found an agent so I, I was I was very very lucky. Do you think having kind of lived life's sort of having not I suppose rushed into writing has made you a better writer? I don't know um I I do know that I did feel that pressure that you spoke about earlier um in the interview when when I started writing, I was in my mid thirties, and and I did, <laughs> which just seems funny now because I'm I'm forty four now, um, and I did think, feel like oh you know this is this is very late, Karis, you know you're you're way behind the curve here, and I I was really heartened to discover that one of my one of the novelists I came across when I was doing my studies was Carol Shields. And I loved her stuff. I absolutely loved it. It just it spoke to me in a way that, you know, other things I, I had been reading um, just really didn't. And, and Carol Shields, I think, was 40 when her first novel was published or was in her very or may have been 39. But she she was older than I was at the time when I was first encountering her work. And I just thought, do you know what? If Carol Shields didn't start publishing her her novels until she was older than I am now, then you know there is all the time in the world. This isn't going to be um, a problem. So, so yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, I'm I'm just actually as you're saying that was just googling to remind myself how old Isabel Allende was when she wrote her first novel, and I actually can't seem to find it out off the top of my head. But I mean, I think she was even. I think she was. Um, she she was older, um, and and certainly I, when she came on the podcast, that was something she felt very strongly about was that people shouldn't feel, um, shouldn't feel the the pressure to, 
write their first book by 30, as, as I so often hear people people say. Can I ask a little bit about what you're like as a writer? I've read, and I've got absolutely no idea if this is true, um, but I've read that you use a treadmill desk. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, I do. I do. Um, I, I, have, well, I have two. No, we, we moved house three years ago, and so for the past three years, I've actually had my own room where I can write. Um, up until that point, I was you know, writing at the kitchen table or um, writing with my laptop on the worktop next to the cooker. In fact, once my laptop was, was sort of half on the cooker and half on the worktop, and I set fire to my laptop by, by turning on the wrong ring. So it was... And in fact, I've still got that laptop. The, the bottom casing is melted in one corner, but it still works, which is, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, so I have my own room now. So I have a I have a treadmill desk and then I have a, a sitting down desk next to it. And um, I don't the treadmill part um, is it's like a um, it's a treadmill that goes very, very slowly. So it, you can um, basically walk so slowly that you're just sort of lifting one foot after the other. You're not really m- making any effort to walk. And it's just nice to sort of not be sat down all the time um because i suppose you know this is terrible but you just gotta get really get really stiff now i've been sat down for a long time <laughs> and i'm like oh no um so yeah i mean you can you could you could run but it only goes um as i say it's just, it's it's a treadmill that actually goes with the desk so it only goes four kilometers um, an hour that's the fastest it can possibly go um, so it really is a treadmill that's specially designed for, for walking or just sort of standing on the spot and lifting your your feet you can really do it that slowly and I, I like it because it just means that um, if I'm if I'm feeling stiff or I'm, if I'm feeling bored I can get up and walk or if I know that I'm gonna say I'm going to listen to a podcast or I'm, I'm gonna watch um, a YouTube video about something I'm researching, then I can just stand up and I can have a I can have a proper walk if I want to while I while I do it. Um, so yeah, so I, I I like it and I I think it's probably good for me. And you, you mentioned you know if you're bored you can you can do uh, right. Uh, walking is often uh, cited as a kind of cure for writer's block. Do you get writer's block and and if so how do you kind of get around that and 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 likewise do you have any other kind of rituals or routines or things that you have to do in order to kind of write creatively I've got yeah I've got some really mixed feelings about the idea of writer's block if you'd asked me um a few years ago I would have said oh I don't I don't sort of believe in it um (laughs) I'm not sure that I still not sure that I entirely do but I think I just I think difficult real life things can um can make it hard to write so um i i lost my brother a few, uh, four years ago and i i found it really 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 hard to write after that um for, for many months just because i felt um felt in a sort of perpetual state of um panic i suppose um and and I couldn't sit still and I was just really fidgety and distractible and um and and also the last thing I wanted to do was to be alone in a room with my thoughts because they weren't great thoughts and I you know <laughs> I did everything I could to make sure that I wasn't um wasn't on my own and sitting sitting around thinking so so then then it did become very very hard to write um 
but I'm not entirely sure that that's that's writer's block as such. Um, but yeah, I I try to I, I will I will often procrastinate and procrastinate until I'm at such a point that I'm like, right, that's it. You have to do this, and then I will do things in a big big burst of of um of stuff. So I might stay up um all night and be like right you have to finish this section um so I, I tend to work quite well and under pressure um and I also um I like to go um to Gladstone's library um which is just this beautiful uh beautiful library um and and work there as well sometimes to just be you know away and to think right I've come here and I'm going to work and I'm going to this is what I'm going to do while I'm here um, I, I, I would usually go uh, about once a year uh, with a group of three friends who are also writers. And so we'll all work our socks off during the day. And then in the evening, we'll sort of talk about what we're working on and um, offer each other some encouragement. Uh, so, so, yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, it, it might be a little while before I get to do anything like that again. Um, but, yeah. And can I ask what, what, I mean, you said it might be a while before you're getting to do something like that again. What are you working on next? What is your kind of next endeavour? Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so I am actually actually writing a novel that's set during the lockdown, which is what everyone's saying not to do. Um, so, <laughs> but I'm having a go. We'll see. It's, um, it's not actually about COVID. Um, I suppose if you um, think about, say, Tom's Midnight Garden, it's a novel that happens because Tom's brother has got measles, but it's not a novel about measles. Mm. And that's what I'm working on. I'm working on a novel that happens because of the lockdown. Um, nobody in the novel has COVID, but the novel happens because of the lockdown, but it's not actually about about COVID. It's about a mother and a daughter um living together when they normally wouldn't and it's about their relationship so that's what I'm working on um I'm I don't know whether it it will be good enough to uh you know to be published at some point um we'll have to have to wait and see can I just ask you as a sort of you're an award-winning novelist with several books under your belt when you say you're not sure it'll be good enough to publish um who why would it not be would that just be your decision do you often just give up and put stuff in drawers or um it's I feel like I'm always I'm I always feel very hesitant about whether something's good enough or not I'm I, I sort of exist in a perpetual state of uncertainty <laughs> um so yeah that is my normal sort of process is to feel quite cagey and uncertain and um hesitant about whether something is going to be right um so yeah I'm not that that's just part of of who I am I sort of um I'm always um questioning myself perhaps not just in when it comes to writing as well so so yeah that's that is probably just the way I would phrase when I'm talking about any of my um any of my work any of my novels I when I was writing a song for Izzy Bradley I I didn't um, didn't tell my 
parents that I was writing a novel about about Mormons and until um the novel was bought and then obviously I had no choice but to, <laughs> but to tell them so yeah so up until the moment when when somebody actually wants the thing it doesn't it sort of almost doesn't seem real um and so yes I think that happens every time every time I'm working on something I just feel like you know I'm I'm uns- I'm uncertain about it um and I don't I suppose it's it's sort of not wanting to count your chickens um you know before they've hatched how did your parents react when you told them um I think they were worried that you know when you when you belong to a minority religion um I think you know you worry that that people will um l- look at it and find weirdness where there isn't weirdness or difference where there isn't difference and I think so I think they were a little bit concerned to start with but actually um you know I, I I've got Mormon friends who read it who've, who who liked it and my parents have got Mormon have got friends who read it and liked it so it was fine it was all fine in the end but I think at first they were quite nervous um and, and you know thinking oh gosh what 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 has she put in it but I tried really hard to to show the good things about being part of a religious community as well as the things that I find personally quite difficult um you know and tricky um I I remember when my husband and I moved back to Southport and we were still we still still going to church then and he called the local congregation you know the man in charge of the local congregation to say we were moving and you know um we'd hired our own van and my husband drove through the night and and he arrived at six in the morning and all the men from the church had Mm. gone to the house we were moving into before they went to work that day and they unloaded the van for us and then off Mm. they all went to work and you know so there are some lovely positive things um that you get from being part of a community like that and also you know some some things which are perhaps less less nice um so I, I tried I tried very hard to be fair um in my portrayal and I I, I think my parents um could see that so yeah can I ask you one final question before mm. I let you go which is a question I ask everyone which is uh if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be oh <laughs> Um, I think it would be not to worry as well if my younger self like so when i was when I was twenty eight um I'd had all my children so if i if I can say to my younger self who who was that younger self in the in her twenties, I would just tell her not to worry so much about about your children like children are children are resilient and I did used to just you know I wanted to be a really great mum and I I used to think put a lot of pressure on myself and I used to feel like I should be doing a lot better and doing a lot more and and those years of tiredness are, are hard um and I think I would tell myself not to not to be so hard on myself I think and that that it, you know it it all it all comes out in the wash and it, it turns out okay in the end that is fantastic advice and mm-hmm. a great note to end on. Karis, thank you so much for your time. You've been absolutely riveting to speak to. Thank you very, very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
and to everyone listening when the lights go out is available now so that's it from us thank you so much for listening to the sunday salon please do share your thoughts about the episode with me i'm on twitter and instagram at alice azania and if you're enjoying the podcast um please do think about leaving a rating or a review because i absolutely love them when they appear and they also really help the podcast success so until next week thank you very much and goodbye